Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Thanks so much for joining us. And if this is your first time, I invite you to hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you might be listening to the show. All right, everyone, I am here with David Ha. David is a research scientist at Google Brain. David, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thanks for having me, Sam. Hey, I'm really looking forward to diving into our conversation. I've been a longtime follower of yours on Twitter, and I definitely recommend folks check you out there at Hard Maru. Why don't we get started by having you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in AI? Yeah, sure. It's kind of a weird background. I was originally, you know, studying control systems back in the day in university. You know, almost became a, almost entered grad school to do control systems. But you know, at the, at the time, uh, you know, there, eventually, for some one reason other than that, I, I entered the finance industry. I became, I started off as a like a quant on uh, in on Wall Street actually. <laughs> I, okay. I started working at banks, and then eventually worked on a trading desk as a trader. And I spent around ten years or or so of my life in the derivatives trading at various different investment banks. But you know, it kind of things kind of got a bit old, and uh, tried to learn different things. And I was always interested in neural networks because uh, they're they're always fascinating. You know, like, especially the biological inspired component. And I mm-hmm. started to to do some you know, reading and learning by myself. And, you know, one thing led to the other. And, you know, around five years ago, I was able to join Google in one of their you know, like a research residency programs and as a researcher. So then I was able to, to change careers and became a full-time AI researcher. <laughs> and so this okay. is where I am now. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Has the idea or the attraction, the initial attraction to the biological inspiration, has that held up for you? Do you do you feel like the the biological inspiration continues to inspire you, or was it a letdown to find out that you know the neural networks and computers are not all that similar to the biological ones? Well, I think to this day, it still continues to inspire me, you know, uh, and drives some of my work. Uh, but like, we, we do have to recognize that the modern deep learning or machine learning systems are very different than biological processes. I mean, for one thing, we can, we can scale them up. Uh, we have lots of uh, you know, electricity and compute power. And the, the trend is actually, you know, having more and more compute resources and for machine learning and training to increasingly scale to, to larger models and larger data sets and larger environments. And it's a bit different than, than biology because uh, in biological systems, it's or like more like a biological intelligent life is more like, you know, coming from and evolving because we, we have, not because we have an abundance of resources, but more like we have a, a lack of it. And you know, some, I was, I'm fascinated at how like evolution seems to select systems that are able to, to always do more with less. Mm-hmm. And, but in a way, you know, that's it's not just biological systems, but also like the, the creativity process as well. Like sometimes yeah. we see on creative works, it's always like, like uh, you're able to to express more with less. 
the, I think the interesting thing about you know being a, a researcher, especially at Google, is you know you, have, you do have a lot of resources, so you you get to see both ends of the spectrum, right? So on one hand, you know you, you do get to see people who are really excited at you know scaling up the research research and making you know, like um, very large systems work on large data sets. And on the other end of the spectrum, you have people working on on theory or, or on like, you know, uh, coming from like a theoretical physics backgrounds. And and actually they may not even, you know, like do a lot of uh, extensive computational modeling. So it's it's like, it's good to see a balance of, of this, the spectrum of, you know, like a resource heavy stuff and, and also kind of like that. The things that concentrate on having very low resources, and then ultimately, you know, you, you need both. You, know, you, you can have yeah. large models, and you have small chips that run them with less power. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you alluded to this idea of constraints as playing a, a role in the way you think about machine learning systems. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, like getting back to the the idea of constraints we see in in nature, it, it certainly plays a role in you know, like a shaping some of the research work that we've been doing. Like in, in nature, for example, like there are lots of examples of these like so-called bottlenecks that shaped our developments as a species. Like just looking at the, the fascinating way of how our brain is wired, how our consciousness is able to like process abstract thought. Like we have a language, I'm talking to you in language, even though we have a video feed and, and also how we're able to convey concepts to each other, like not just using languages, but using like say drawings or like gestures like this, right? And, and that, that's developed into languages, stories and cultures. So I guess like to me, it's, it's kind of debatable whether these bottlenecks or constraints from our development is a requirement for intelligence to emerge. But it's also not deniable that like our own intelligence is a result of these constraints. Like on, on one hand, you know, like uh, maybe the argument is like just because we have constraints that led to us, it doesn't mean we, we cannot, you know, like uh, have a, the development of a general, like a strong, like uh, AI needs to have such constraints. So there are opposite views of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. But from our research work, it's more like a led by the idea of constraints and you can see this from some some of the work I've done, like even very earlier, like a few years ago, when I started to get into things like generative models. So, yeah, like back then, GANs were really taking off in 2017 or 2016. They started to take off, and you know, at the beginning, people were really excited at generating like CIFAR 10 images, 32 by 32 pixels. But then they, they got bigger, like 64 by 64, 128 by 128, like a pictures of uh, data sets of CD albums or something really cool. And so there's all this exciting work going on. And I, I had my share of playing around with these generative models as well. So a few early works I've done is to, is to build a generative model for, for MNIST, <laughs> the, the simplest data set ever. Mm -hmm. But you know, rather than taking the approach of generating you know, pixels directly, I try to generate parameterization of MNIST, which can be very, very abstract in nature. And mm -hmm. that led to like an early work. I combined some of the, the models from another researcher, uh, Ken Stanley at the time, who, who, create, who designed this network called uh, 
CPPNs. So it, uh-huh. uh, if you're familiar with that, it's more like you take in the pixels, and you take in the coordinates, and it outputs a pixel. So if you have a simple rule that can take in a coordinate and output a pixel, then you actually don't need to train the network to output the entire pixel. You just train the network to simply give me the coordinate, I'll give you the pixel value. So, so I train such a network to generate MNIST digits. So it's very elegant. And, and the end process is you can actually you know, train it on an MNIST data set, 28 by 28, into this abstract generative model, which I call a CPPN VAE or GANs. And then you can actually blow it up and generate you know, like a, the MNIST digits that are like 1,000 by 1,000 resolution back in uh, 2016. Uh, so this, oh, this wow. was before people can do it. Now we can actually you know, model GANs on 1,000 by 1,000 resolution data sets uh, yeah. with, with our exponentially increasing hardware. But I thought at the time, it was kind of cool to be able to train again in 2016, you know, right after Ian Goodfellow's GAN paper came out for a few months, and you're able to also produce 1,000 by 1,000 resolution images by skipping entirely the need to, to produce such big images. And the key is to abstract the principles of that image into like a, an abstract representation using, using the CPPNs. And later work, I, I kind of followed the same trend. Uh, I looked at creating a generative model of doodles. There's a model, I don't know, like you probably played around with it called a sketch RNN. Yeah. Uh, you, can, you can interactively draw something on the web browser and uh, the model is like a language model. It'll continue to predict what you're going to draw, like a stroke mm-hmm. by stroke in a vector format. It, it's also like an autoencoder model as well. So you can draw a pig, a full pig, and then it, it can compress it into a latent space and then redraw the pig out. So now, now is uh, very trivial in retrospect, but a few years ago, it was one of the different uh, models because uh, most people are working on, on GANs and generative models on on pixels and that we're, we're trying to do it on doodles. And at the time, the challenging thing was finding the data sets. And luckily, one of my colleague, Jonas, John, Jonas at uh, Creative Labs, uh, they, they created a viral game called uh, QuickDraw that collected mm-hmm. some of this, this uh, doodle data that we can use. So I thought, I thought that was kind of fun. And like for that project, it was more like inspired by, okay, rather than trying to create a representation a minimalist representation. Maybe we can use machine learning to study how we humans ourselves do like a representation representation learning, because uh, of our own inductive biases, we were forced to draw doodles. Uh, maybe from the time we were cave people, because we have a, we have hands and we have sticks, so mm-hmm. we developed this type <laughs> of drawing. So maybe it's you know be um, a good idea, a cool idea to get machine learning models. To, to analyze how we develop this representation and that can lead to lead to other ideas. And one of those, uh, the ideas after this sketch RNN paper was when I started to get into doing some work on reinforcement learning. And, okay. uh, and you know, like what I thought was we have all of these cool algorithms that can train agents to, to perform tasks when the agents are fed pixels, the entire screen, which was really amazing at the time. At the time, uh, the DQN model from DeepMind came out and agents started playing Pong or like Atari games, Atari yeah. pixels. I thought that was cool. But but in a way, I, I kind of 
think that could be information overload as well, as most of the pixels are, are not useful when, when you're playing Pong games uh, or Atari games. So, so I, I, what, what I try to do is like, you know, have enforce a type of constraints on, onto the, the policy or the, the, the controller so that it's not allowed to see the, the full pixel information or the stream of pixels. And it's only allowed to see a representation of, of its environments. That work led to a model, uh, a paper called uh, the World Models. It's kind of an exploratory paper uh, that I published a few years ago with uh, Jürgen Schmidhuber. And mm -hmm. uh, it was a really fun project. So the idea is uh, we have a really simple generative model. We use a, a variational autoencoder to simply compress all, the, all of the screens into a low-dimensional latent space. And we have another recurrent neural network that simply predicts the, the future latent space uh, of the environment. So if, if you have a VAE that's trained on, trained on your, your game that produces a low-dimensional latent vector, your RNN will predict your, your future latent vectors, like uh, depending on its current. So you're essentially predicting the future state of the game? Yes, exactly, exactly. So and that was a fun project because we're, we're able to use these two simple concepts to to build a neural simulator of like uh, games, uh, if we're able to, to collect enough data on it. And, and what, what was fun about the project is we, we, can, we show that we can just feed in the representations learned from such a model, like the VAE's latent vector and also the yeah. RNN's hidden state and feed it to an agent. And like at the time, uh, this, we show that this hidden vector, like the small, this bottleneck allowed the agents to discover policies much more easier than compared to, you know, like a, having to see the entire pixel information. Because from an optimization standpoint, it's easier to figure out what you have to do if you're only given like maybe 200 numbers and give me an action compared to if you're given like, you know, uh, a million numbers every time mm -hmm. said, give me an action, right? So because of that, uh, it was able to, to like solve tasks like the, the car racing game in OpenAI Gym. Um, mm -hmm. back, back then, it was like considered a hard task. Now it's trivial, but, uh, yeah. no, but no one was able to get the required score. And I'm sure if people tried hard enough, they could. But at the time, this was the, the first approach that was able to, to get the required score to, for, for that game, you know, which was, I guess, uh, from the machine learning research point of view, it, it was uh, considered state-of-the-art. <laughs> uh, no, I'm, I'm sure if you tweak it, not any model enough, you can also beat it. But apart from that, really... <laughs> With those kind of results, have we seen that idea of you know constraining your latent space become generally used as part of state-of-the-art approaches in RL and, and similar areas? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So from that paper, I think, you know, whether we got state-of-the-art or not, it, it doesn't really matter for in general in machine learning papers because it will always be beaten by later on. <laughs> but the idea on that paper of that you can, you can learn a generative model and train an agent entirely inside of that model to produce a policy, that was the main idea that, that seems to have uh, taken off in subsequent works. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, after the, the World Models paper, there was another paper about the model-based learning for Atari. 
So uh, where they, they, they literally call their algorithm simple. <laughs> and mm -hmm. the idea is basically, okay, you have your agents collect data, train a generative model of the environment to predict the future, and then train your policy inside of that environment only. Right. Right. Of course, at the beginning, you're not going to get a good policy, but then it doesn't matter. You deploy that policy up and you collect more data and then you would refine your, your model and then you would redeploy it. So when that work came out in 2019, at the time, that was then the state of the art for, for sample efficiency for various Atari games, because uh, simply because the learning took place in the model. There's a, a lot of the sample efficiency, if we, if we notice when we run an RL algorithm, is you, know, you have the data collection process, but you're also learning in the environments, and that could, there could be some slippage in, 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 in efficiency. So if you're able to isolate the data collection from policy learning, your interactions with the environment is strictly for data collection and for evaluation policy. Uh, of your policy and all of your learning is done in the model, then, then intuitively that will help, that would also help the data efficiency. And another line of work done by my colleague, Danny Jara Hafner, who, who's also uh, working at Google, but based in Toronto is, you, he, he started using these latent based role models and combined them with planning algorithms. So like traditionally uh, planning algorithms are really useful for robotics. But at the same time, uh, they're kind of flaky as well, like, especially when, flaky when, in it, what sense? when it comes to when you're getting the, like, a, for example, full video feeds of sensory data, maybe uh, traditionally, a lot of the, the planning algorithms were used on like state observations. So you, you feed in like, you know, like a really well-engineered measurements of your yeah. robot controller, right? But like, how, then how the key question is, how do you get? your robot controller or your control system to work on video feeds, right? So, mm -hmm. so then I guess something like um, a world model or a latent-based world model with, uh, with this latent bottleneck could be useful for planning algorithms because then you, uh, it, they're really good at working with low-dimensional data. So then you give it low-dimensional data. So the, the key idea behind uh, that line of work initially started by a model called a planet. <laughs> so it's kind of uh -huh. a name is to, you have a, you have this kind of a latent, latent uh, spatial temporal world model that is, is constantly updated as you get more data and you have a planner that will figure out the optimal action within the model. Mm -hmm. so, so then you don't actually don't need to do any learning. <laughs> Does this also help with generalization? You think that a lower latent space model has gotten rid of some of the noise that the full the full world or environment contains, and so the agent might be able to perform the agent's performance might transfer from you know one specific environment to another better. Is that actually the case? Yeah, that that is still like an open question. If like for for instance, if I naively train a world model based on based on the data that we collect, mm -hmm. then like no, it's 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 not going to generalize to to variations. Like like uh, an example is uh, if we change the background color of right of your environments, then yeah, your your VAE or or your latent model has never seen that before, and that generalization can only be done in 
via learning. So that algorithm would need to collect the new data and mm -hmm. relearn its world again. And whether it can generalize or not will be a question of like uh, of how many shots, how how many time steps it has to generalize. Uh, rather than a zero shot. But that mm -hmm. being said, there is like a, a line of work on, on looking at uh, generalization problems within latent space models. There, there's a, okay. actually like a few challenges. Like there's a, a deep mind robotic control have a variation where they explicitly you know, introduce lots of distractions and changing the backgrounds. And, and then you can employ lots, all sorts of uh, ways like rather than training like a, a image-based latent space you can do contrastive learning uh, there's, a, mm -hmm. there's a lot of work doing that and so on uh, but, but for me um, around that time i also you know stepped back a bit you know, there's all these uh, i have the same question as you you know can this do generalization yeah of course mm -hmm. there's, there's lots of different ways of, of doing doing these latent space models uh, but i, I looked at uh, along with my my colleagues and my team, we 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 started to to explore a bit, and may, maybe latent space bottlenecks is one solution, but it's it might not be the best solution for these generalization tasks. So okay. we we looked at uh, maybe another bottleneck we can use is is something like attention, or mm -hmm. or in our case, we try to use our heart attention. So like uh, in in a in a paper we published. Uh, like two years ago, called a neural evolution of self-interpretable agents, uh, which is led okay. by my colleague Eugene Tang. Uh, rather than using using a latent space for to do this uh, bottleneck, the idea is we will only allow an agent to to see ten patches, for instance, of the screen, and its decision is solely based on those ten patches, however number of patches we want. So it, it's kind of like biological vision for our uh, fovea type uh, system where we have to really, you know, when we study how humans see things, it's always like, you know, attending to, to a bunch of points in front of mm -hmm. us. But somehow we have a mental uh, understanding of what we're seeing. But it's not like we're, we're, I'm getting like, you know, full on HD resolution directly in my eyes. I'm, I'm actually seeing <laughs> a bunch of things. <laughs> so it's kind of inspired by, by that. And in this example or, or paper is the, were the patches, were you trying to emulate like a visual field and the, the patches were kind of contiguous in a particular arrangement or were they, you know, randomly distributed across the, the image? Oh yeah. For, so for this work, it's part of the policy actually. So, so rather okay. than having a, a randomized uh, frame, the, the agent actually has to learn to decide first uh which 10 which patches to choose. <laughs> right it's like how when you're looking at me somehow you're deciding where to position your your eyeball mm -hmm. on the screen so in the same way the agent has to to decide which 10 or it doesn't have to be 10 it could be one or two that'll still work got but it, got we, it. We, we do a sweep then that we can be a bit more general and, and choose five or ten so it's, it's less like I was originally thinking it was along the lines of masking for kind of generalization or regularization. This is more learning where to attend to within the image as a constraint. Yes, exactly. It's also inspired by a line of work in, in uh, psychology a few decades ago. Uh, the whole concept of, uh, uh, I'm sure you heard about this, this in, 
inattentive, selective attention. Mm-hmm. This uh, inattentional blindness. So some sometimes uh, our brains mm-hmm. just don't see part of the screen uh, or part mm-hmm. of what we see. So there was a psychology experiment done back then, where the the subjects were asked to look at a scene, and the scene had two two teams of basketball players, one wearing white shirts and the, two, the second one wearing black shirts. And I think the subjects have to count the number of times that the ball was passed between the white shirt, the players to the black shirt players, yeah. something like that. And then there's a gorilla working, walking yeah. through the background. <laughs> and most of the time, the subjects were not able to, to see the gorilla because they're so yeah. focused on the ball and, and the colors of of uh, what people are wearing. So that kind of helped, uh, okay, create some analogies between, okay, we have this thing called, whether we like it or not, called intentional blindness. Uh, mm-hmm. What if we try to do something like that with an RL agent? Uh, what are the pros and cons? Uh, does it give it more abilities or does it actually deduct some of the abilities? And that's, that was what we're trying to explore. And it turns out that uh, using this simple scheme, we were also able to train some simple agents to do the same task as the world models paper, like getting a pretty good score on the car racing game from pixels and playing the Doom game. But unlike the previous latent space models, this model we found can easily adapt to, to augmentations to the environments. Like, like for instance, uh, in Doom, in that Doom, this Doom environments, if we change the color of, of the ground, uh, it will still work. Uh, if we okay. add like a little blob on the side of the tracks in the car racing game, it will still work. And the reason is those patches are likely not to be selected by the pre-trained agents. So it's just simply, it works because it's just not attending to the things that it deemed not to be that relevant mm-hmm. to some extent. Uh, of course, this is very like a naive uh, way of like approaching the problem because like in reality it's very nuanced like we do see a bit of it but it's kind mm-hmm. of a simple model that clearly uh, demonstrates that inattentional blindness if we strictly enforce it in the context of uh, NRL agents it will have these properties that uh, because it's simply not allowed to see certain parts of the screen uh, it may lack it, you throw away information but you also gain ability to to generalize to changes in the environments. Yeah, yeah. And, and does it, how does it compare from a sample efficiency to the constrained latent space? Does it retain that advantage in some way? For, for this one, no, no, because uh, it yeah. actually takes uh, a bit more time to train or to evolve the policy for, to be able to perform the task. Uh, but, but the way I think about these issues is that there's a few dimensions. You can work on optimizing the sample efficiency, like maybe reducing an RL algorithm from you know, 200 million time steps to 100 million time steps uh, to yeah. achieve some score. Or you can think about sample efficiency in terms of zero-shot transfer. So one can argue that, okay, I spent all of this time figuring out the policy uh, using a hard attention in this paper. Uh, but if you give it a, a new environment, which is not the same as the original environment, but one that has has some augmentations to it, we can argue that that's a new environment. And, mm-hmm. and how many time steps would it take your agents to adapt to that new environment? And here, the case is uh, zero because it's right. a, right. a zero shot. 
So that's also like a, another way of looking at uh, sample efficiency as well. Not not on the training task, but, but right. on the task that it has never seen in life, which ultimately kind is kind of arguing for a global sample efficiency in a sense across multiple problems or versions of a problem. Exactly. Or in our case, I think uh, I'm really interested in, in sample efficiency across uh, unseen versions of the problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, yeah. that, that's basically what uh, one of the, the goals of, of AI is. It's, it's like, of course, given enough compute, we're, we're going to solve every known problem that is well-defined. But one of the things that distinguishes us from machines so far is like our ability to, to solve problems quickly. Uh, that we have not seen before with variations. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You mentioned earlier your work with Ken Stanley and, and you just mentioned this concept of evolution. I spoke to him probably several years ago talking about his work in neuroevolution. Were you using evolution loosely or have you also studied the these ideas of neuroevolution and kind of evolutionary neural nets and machine learning? Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. For example, the work that I just talked about, neuroevolution of in self-interpretable agents, like we actually used the evolution uh, or computational evolution algorithms to train the agents uh, so rather than using like, uh, like reinforcement learning to train them. In general, I kind of like some of the evolution algorithms uh, mm-hmm. because they're kind of like, uh, we can use them as a black box optimizer as well. We don't necessarily need everything to be nice and differentiable, which is one of the key properties of many, many domains right now. So once, once things are differentiable, then you can put it into the machine and your, your gradient-based optimizer would, would get the solution. Mm-hmm. But because hard attention is, is kind of difficult to make it very differentiable, or there are methods, but it, it, it's challenging. It's just easier sometimes to use evolution to solve these problems. So on one hand, we, we do like to use uh, evolution and specifically evolution strategies and genetic algorithms as a tool to help us find solutions. But I did work on some research projects where we're also developing these evolution algorithms as well. So uh, there, there was uh, another paper with these theme of constraints uh, was done with me and uh, it was led to my former colleague and intern, Adam Geyer, okay. uh, in a paper called uh, Weight Agnostic Neural Networks. Mm. So the key concept in that paper is, uh, you know, we want to find the neural ne- network architectures that have a really strong inductive bias for certain like reinforcement learning or machine learning tasks. Mm-hmm. And can we go to the extreme and find architectures that can work even without training weights. Hmm. So, so usually when we, you think of neural networks, you think of having a neural network architecture. Yeah. Okay. And then let's run the optimization algorithm using SGD the weight. to find the weights. But here we, okay, yeah. what, can we still find the architecture that can still work when we don't train the weights? Like when the weights are chosen from a random distribution. Mm-hmm. That one is when we looked at, we essentially looked at doing architecture search where we want to optimize the performance of the architecture with a given weight distribution. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right. So of course, your architecture is not going to perform as well as when all the weights were fine-tuned. 
Right. But it, this is still very useful because, as you know, neural architecture search is extremely computational intensive. Mm -hmm. So you, you will have a batch of architectures, and then you will have to find the weights of all of these architectures. And then you would go on to find the next set of architectures yeah. using the results. But here, we can s simply find the architectures and evaluate their performance on, on random weights. And, and then we can find uh, architectures that are, have, a, have a very strong inductive or even like an innate bias for certain tasks. So then the intuition is, like, is kind of inspired by, by the biology. Uh, sometimes the, the organisms have some ability the moment they're born to, mm -hmm. to escape predators, right? Yeah, so yeah. You can imagine like maybe you can, you can have a bipedal walker controller that can already still walk forward when the weights are not trained. But uh, if, you, if that's the starting point, then, then training the weights will be a lot more efficient if you want to fine-tune the network later on. So, so that, that's like, a, to answer your, your question earlier, is like, this is like one example of the work that I was involved in where we actually tried to extend and, and, and improve upon architecture or neural evolution methods to find neural networks that were not just the end user of the evolution algorithm as a black box optimizer. Okay. Yeah, this, this paper was, was apparently like a, talked about in the neuroscience community a bit more than the machine learning community. It was not so useful to the ML community. Like the, we got our best score on MNIST was like 92% or I forgot around there. So it, it was like the, the MNIST performance is horrible. So it, it's not going to be so useful for, <laughs> for, for the MNIST community. But, but the, the paper still, still got accepted at the NeurIPS conference, you know, and it got like a spotlight. But it's probably one of those papers that where we, we massively underperformed the state of the art with uh -huh. 90% on MNIST, but somehow still got in. You know, <laughs> kind of locked down <laughs> on that one. <laughs> nice, nice. I tend to hear neuroevolution coming up most in the context of architecture search. Are there other areas where you see it being used? Yeah, well, like, uh, as I mentioned earlier, like, we use it a lot just for policy search. Yeah. We also see it used quite often in, in robotics as well. Huh. Uh, like, for example, some of my colleagues in the robotics team, they like to use simple evolution algorithms to, to quickly find policies. Uh, there's two that is, is really used often. One, one is uh, CMAES. That is uh, kind of like the, the default evolution strategies algorithm that people like to use as a black box optimizer. Okay. The other one is called a, I think it's called an augmented random search. It's basically mm -hmm. evolution is a form of random search. Um, mm -hmm. and, and this one is a, it's a very simple random search algorithm that's directed in a very simple way. So the robotics folks likes these simple approaches because they're explainable and they're intuitive. So I see some people using them to find the policies, legged robots, and using them to control these uh, like Mimitar robots uh, okay. that, that they have in the lab. But I use them a lot for, in general, like uh, especially if when I have a neural net without so many parameters, 
like which is very common in RL. Unlike uh, deep learning, where you you have like you know twenty million parameter solutions in RL, a lot of the the controllers might work when we only have have like ten thousand parameters or even one thousand parameters. So so as as like uh, Yan Lacoon likes to say, the RL is like a cherry on a cake. Right? Mm -hmm. So so <laughs> the the trend is uh, you have all these self supervised models that are trained with gradient descent with hundreds of millions of parameters, but your actual policy network that could be using all of these things, maybe perhaps via a world model, and those networks could might even just be a few thousand parameters. And that can, you know, why bother using gradient descent to train them when if we're able to use evolution to train them, we can get away with doing things like non-differentiable environments and and whatnot. So we tend to like to use those as as a baseline. Mm -hmm. And in that case, in conjunction with other RL methods and approaches to policy, or kind of in isolation. For these, we we usually like uh, if we're able to get the solution we want, then we can use them like uh, in isolation. Okay. Uh, I mean, there's some of my colleagues have been working on ways to combine the, the reinforcement learning with evolution. Yeah, so that's what maybe, I was curious about. Yeah, then evolution can kind of be the outer loop and the RL can be the inner loop. Mm -hmm. But in, in a lot of the work where I'm simply using like a, an end user of an optimizer, then I, I simply use it to get me a set of weights or get me a set of parameters and, mm -hmm. and call it a day. <laughs> <laughs> Did we talk about the sensory neuron paper? Oh, no, no. It sounds like, I mean, it, it kind of fits right into this idea of constraints and applying constraints to, to make problem solving easier. Can you talk a little bit about that paper? Yeah, sure. So like uh, some of the, the previous work I, I discussed, it's, it's more like you know, the constraint is more like a bottleneck like an information yeah. bottleneck, and maybe you're doing more with less. But it doesn't always have to be like that. So in, in this paper, we it was a really fun project, uh, also with, with my uh, teammates, uh, Eugene Tang. Uh, we, we looked at the problem of uh, what, what if we gave an agent an observation space that is shuffled around? So like usually mm -hmm. in, in these reinforcement learning environments or in machine learning in general, you have to give a model very well specified input data, like like if if you give it like the the, the observation space of of a, a humanoid or an ant robot, every single input means something. Like maybe the torque or the velocity or the positions, or maybe the the pixels on the screen. Uh, this pixel corresponds to to this has to be this position. So mm -hmm. we we toyed around with the the idea of what if we we can randomly shuffle the observations. And the agent actually has to like uh, figure out what each input, like each sensory input means be before you know, deciding an action. If an agent is able to, to solve a particular task or environments or, or a machine learning problem from shuffled observations, we can also examine the, the properties, uh, whether it has uh, extra benefits that it has compared to agents that are otherwise trained the normal way. Uh, mm -hmm. of, of just getting getting the inputs. Uh, so this is another type of constraint that I don't consider to be a bottleneck or information bottleneck. 
as like you're actually giving the agent the same in information. I, I guess like the dimensionality of the information is the same. Right. But here we we try to just shuffle the order, and and surprisingly uh, we're able to we're able to get it to work. So, like the the inspiration of this work originally came from some ideas on in a meta learning space because we, okay. we we're essentially trying to to get an agent to adapt to changing environments when it's like the agent will will get a, a shuffled and reshuffled screen and it has to readapt. But also in the, in the neuroscience, there's the area called a sensory substitution, and uh, so psychologists have to measure the human's ability to adapt to when what our senses give us uh, suddenly change. Like there's this popular uh, experiment done uh, even a hundred years ago. You're wearing an upside down goggle. I'm not sure you saw that. So you, there's a there's a simple uh, mirror glass in front of your eyes, and so what you're seeing mm -hmm. is is completely flipped. Okay. And uh, what people notice is that it requires maybe 10 minutes or half an hour of readjusting, and you're able to walk perfectly fine with this flip sensory. But once you take off the glass, then you're messed up again for another you know, half an hour or so. So that, that's kind of, I guess, one of the easier tasks. There's a, a TED Talk a few years ago where someone had a video of an inverted bicycle. So this one is harder. When, when you turn left, you actually go right. Mm-hmm. And when you turn right, you actually go left. And they found this one really messed people up. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. so you, like, I guess because uh, when you're riding a bicycle, it's more like uh, it's like a human invention, I guess. So it, it, takes, it takes a long time for people to readapt because you, you actually have to balance as well. You're like a, a complicated control system constantly yeah. balancing. So that one really messed people up. I don't know if you've ever had the experience where your, your screen controls get flipped. I don't remember what caused it but you know your trackpad right becomes left and up becomes down and and vice versa and that can be you know infuriating it's very difficult to to adjust to yeah exactly yeah especially like you know apple like whenever you use like apple products like, okay where sometimes your, your trackpad goes the other way around when you're on another person's uh, trackpad or when they have new models of, of <laughs> iBooks or, or MacBook Pros, you have a you have a touch bar and you suddenly don't have a touch bar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, now we're back to the old days. There's another neuroscientist, Paul, Paul Bakarita, who's kind of a pioneer of sensory substitution. Okay. And, and his claim to fame was he had people who were unfortunately blind, they cannot see, just lack vision. And uh, back in the end of the 60s, he had an experiment where he put a low-dimensional video camera it's analog back in the day and he fed some of those signals from the analog video camera into a low dimensional 2d grid of pokes into the person's yeah. back i've heard about this yeah one of the the cool things is our skin or our touch senses is underutilized everywhere outside of our hands mm -hmm. like maybe from evolution when we were hunter gatherers our skin was really important but in kind of modern times that we we wear you know like a clothing and we, we don't really use our touch senses but that, that's another interesting topic but it's kind of getting sidelined but that for for this particular idea is that he poked a low dimensional resolution of emission to the subject's mm -hmm. back and within a few weeks or months people gain vision they were able to to see and understand things uh, by sitting on this chair so he showed that through touches or through pokes on a set person's back 
that person can can learn to to interpret those signals as if that person was was seeing what's in front of the the camera. And in the late nineties and uh, turn of the century, there was a variation of this prop from this team where they they fed in a higher resolution video feed into a two D grid of electrodes that was placed on a person's tongue. From the stimulation on the tongue, the person's is able to the the subject is able to interpret what the video camera mounted on the subject's head is seeing. And th- this was actually, you know, gained popularity. Like uh, people were able to live their lives then, like having a low-dimensional uh, vision system, simply oh, wow. by learning to predicting how uh, these sensory uh, signals from the from their, I guess, from, from their tongue. But however, uh, these are incredible. It shows how how great we are. But they require like months, if not years, of training to gain right. mastery. So it's it's kind of like, okay, sure. You can change, you can switch around your inputs and retrain your machine learning model from scratch, even, uh, and using the new inputs. And of course, yeah, then then you can deal with these sensory substitutions. So Mm -hmm. what we're trying to ask ourselves is, can we actually get an algorithm to do this without training in in the traditional sense, like without like retraining your model, where so uh, the agent is able to explicitly adapt to, to these inputs. In the end, uh, even though this work is biologically inspired on, from, on the problem side, the solution we use has nothing to do with, with biology. We're, we're lucky enough to, to build on the previous work that gave us to do the tools to work with permutation invariant networks. And some of these uh, works have been pioneered by by people working on the transformer paper. The original transformer paper uses the linear attention, which was predates transformer by a lot, but th- those were shown to be permutation equivariants. So if if you change the input order, the output order changes the same way. But uh, there's another paper that came out later called the set transformer, which had a really cool trick on making one of the the query matrix constant, and that converted this attention mechanism to be permutation invariant. So suddenly mm-hmm. you're able to feed in. A signal of like a, of any order, and the output will be the same thing. Okay. So it'll be like a it's it's a method to to take on a set of an unordered uh, variable length set, and and you're able to to get a get a permutation invariant representation of it. So we played around with this idea and applied it to reinforcement learning problems. So so whether you can. Uh, you can feed in all of your signals, uh, whether those signals could be the states of uh, a pie bullets, like locomotion environments, or it could be like all of the, the tiles of, of an Atari game. Mm-hmm. And you can feed them in any order you want, and then you get the same representation coming up. So we, we tried to, to feed these representations into, into a policy network and, and train the entire system to, to perform the task. And uh, what we noticed is that it, it, uh, after after certain development, we have to iterate on this method. It doesn't work at the beginning. So some of the improvements that my my colleague Eugene discovered is we actually have to feed in things like the previous action and have have each sensory neuron for certain tasks have its own internal state. So for example, like your locomotion robot, actually, you know, every sensory 
uh, input goes into its own LSTM, and that LSTM will output okay. a broadcast a signal to the attention mechanism that will generate uh, this permutation invariance representation that can produce the action. That sounds fairly expensive. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, so in, in a way, it's kind of like abstracting. Like usually, uh, you know, our in traditionally our networks are we just get the input right away in, into into a particular input node of a neural network. But here we we treat every input node as a neural network itself. So that's why I guess the paper's title is the, the sensory neuron as a transformer because these neural networks is has been inspired by the transformer architecture. So to to to, to I guess pay some give some credit to that. Mm -hmm. What we notice is like of course this it's gonna work for permutation invariant observations, but miraculously without additional training, these agents tend to work even when we shuffle them during the observations during an episode. Like like for example, if you have a locomotion robot walked forward, of, of course it's gonna work when you shuffle the input once at the beginning. And Right. Keep that shuffle order the same for the rest of the one thousand time steps, because like by definition, mm -hmm. uh, the representations don't change. But what we notice is we can shuffle them many times during the environments. Like, like if if your episode is one thousand time steps, you can shuffle them, you know, every one hundred time steps, and the, the performance without additional training remains roughly the same. So, mm -hmm. so there, there's something to be said about the the power of uh, the agent's ability to, to quickly readapt uh, without explicitly learning to readapt uh, to the environments. Do you look at, or, or would you expect to see that if you then, you train an agent with this capability or this constraint, you know, as you might say, and then you give it unshuffled data, does it perform better because it, you know, has learned to attend to important relationships in the scene as opposed to an agent that, you know, hasn't been trained in this way? For this one, if we give a shuffled or unshuffled data, it'll perform exactly the same way mm. because the representations are consistent. But uh, that being said, we could do things like, um, like take away information mm -hmm. uh, from the input or give it additional redundance information in the input and have it still kind of work. Like, like for instance, if the agent expects like five input signals to do a task, yeah. You can give it like you know, 20 signals, but five of them are the actual important signals and the other 15 are pure noise, uh, a, bit like a, a small amount of noise. Okay. And the whole thing can be shuffled. And without actually extra further training, like it's only trained originally on the five inputs, it's still able to identify like it work. I guess they were to, to somehow learn that it should identify which signals are important without explicitly trained to identify those. But I feel it's, it's kind of like, this is somewhere between learning and meta-learning. Mm -hmm. For something like meta-learning, you're explicitly training the algorithm to learn an algorithm that learns. And therefore, for learning, you're just getting the algorithm a policy for the task. Here, I think the, the method is like indirectly learning self-identification method to identify like which patches or, or which inputs are important. Yeah. And the other interesting result is from the robustness standpoint. So if we applied this methodology to visual tasks, like the car racing game or Pong, like Atari games, we noticed that we can do, we can change the backgrounds of the game and the policy can still continue to work uh, to some extent. Mm. 
This was not possible in the earlier work on, on the hard attention. So when we change the background, it still fails. But here, when we change the background for, for the car racing task, without explicitly training on these new backgrounds, uh, the policy can, can still work to some extent. And the, the performance is, is almost as well as good for these generalization tasks mm -hmm. compared to existing works in the literature that are explicitly designed to do such generalization. Oh, wow. But here, it's like a, a byproduct of, okay, let's train our agent to work with shuffled inputs. And oh, by the way, you know, the, the, the generalization abilities are, are like just a, a byproduct of this constraint. When we dug into further, the hypothesis is if we shuffle up all of the, the, the patches uh, or the tiles of the screen, we force the agents to, to learn like the, the essence, the essential important things for the task. And because it's, it's forced to learn the essential properties, that may help it generalize to variations of the environment with different backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And when we did further analysis, we actually looked at the patches that they learned they learned to attend to, like in, in the car racing game. And it turns out that even though the patches are all shuffled around, it still learns to to attend mostly to the patches that correspond to the edge of the road. Okay. Even even when the screen is all shuffled around. And so then the, this can help us explain why the generalization still works to, to environments with, with uh, when we change the background, because like it, it's not seeing, it's not really attending to, to the positions with, with different backgrounds. It's still looking at, at the road. Mm -hmm. So, so some, some of the analysis is done in the paper to, to explain why the, the transfer works. Got it. Got it. So given this body of research that, that you've pursued, focused on the ideas of constraints, incorporating ideas like neuroevolution, you know, what are you excited about looking forward? Where, where do you see your research headed? Yeah, so I'm really fascinated with the whole concept of the self-organization, especially like I was, I'm really inspired by this body of work that, that my, my colleague Alexander Modinsev did on a neurocellular uh, automata mm. and also self-organizing class MNIST classifiers, which was uh, recent articles on the DistoPub platform. Okay. And like one, one of the things that excited me about this self, the sensory neuro neuron paper is it is sort of like a self-organized system. Every input goes into uh, an identical neural network with its own hidden recurrent state. Mm -hmm. And somehow these neural networks learn to communicate via uh, attention mechanism to have this emergent property, which is the policy. And I'm really excited about uh, like going forward with exploring more of these collective intelligence uh, themes where, you, uh, where you, have a, you have an emergent property from thousands or even like hundreds of thousands of uh, different unique agents or units mm -hmm. that have their own local processing rules. But somehow, uh, as a whole, you have some global emergent property that emerge, that is a result of maybe some evolutionary optimization. And I want to explore like uh, properties of these emergent behavior because maybe that will help us address some of the shortcomings we see in, in reinforcement learning. Like some, some of the issues in RL has to do with like um, robustness 
generalization, like a sample efficiency, mm-hmm. and so on. But we can get inspiration from other areas, like like for example, swarm swarm computing, swarm optimization, like a multi-agent systems, and and maybe if we look at if we try to break down the problem into a large uh, like a complex systems problem where you have lots of local computation, perhaps that might give us some insight or or different types of solutions to how we've been able to approach them so far. So I'm I'm excited about um, the general idea of like a collective intelligence, complex systems, and going forward, we we want to see you know how we can like bridge between the complex systems uh, research and incorporate some some of the good ideas in, into machine learning, and also maybe look at the other way around. Maybe we can use machine learning to also help uh, advance the state of complex systems research. Awesome, awesome. I'm looking forward to following along as you push forward in that direction. David, it's been wonderful chatting with you. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Sam. Always. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, If you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.